Hey everyone, welcome to Basecamp, where we distill the science of wellness and human potential into actionable steps so that you can live your best life. I'm your host, Pat Dossett. As a former Navy SEAL and co-founder of Made For, I believe that with the right steps, you can achieve more than you ever thought possible. Let's do this. Hey everyone, today I'm joined by James Nestor, a world-renowned science journalist and author of two best-selling books, Deep, Freediving, Renegade Science, and What the Ocean Tells Us About Ourselves, and Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. What I appreciate so much about James, aside from his clear, engaging prose and exhaustive scientific research, is his commitment to and complete immersion in the topics on which he writes. Every time I read one of James's books, I'm left feeling both more certain and more curious. Certain in our innate capacity to do more than we ever thought possible, not through the use of high-speed hacks, high-priced supplements, or cutting-edge technology, but rather by simply engaging our bodies and our environments in a manner more in line with our intelligent design. And curious in the recognition that there's still so much we don't know, but also that there's so much more to be done with what we do. I'm so grateful to James for making time for this conversation, and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. Cheers. So uh, welcome, James Nestor. James is a longtime writer um, and what I would what, what I would call as a, uh, actually, James, I don't know how you would frame it, a scientific writer, a scientific researcher, someone that participates in a lot of scientific studies and writes about them. But whatever it is, uh, you've been very successful and you've written two amazing books in deep, uh, the freediving, uh, renegade science and what the ocean tells us about our lives. And then most recently breath, uh, the new science of a lost art, which will be the, the majority of our conversation today. James, thank you for being here. Thanks a lot for having me. Before we, before we dive in on breath, I actually, I have a completely selfish question that I want to ask. I'm someone that has been obsessed with the ocean since I've been a very young child, I've always liked holding my breath and I like free diving and surfing. And um, certainly from my time in the military, I just like being in the water. Your book, Deep, um, really struck a chord with me. And um, for those of you that are listening, if you haven't had a chance to, to check that out, I, I highly recommend checking it out. Um, but you said something at the end of that book that really struck me. And I'm just going to read this quote quickly. You said, over the past two years, it's become clear to me that we don't know what we are yet. And now the truth is like a bell constantly ringing in my ears. I wonder if you could maybe shine a light a little bit on what you meant by that. Mm, I think that we've sold ourselves pretty short over the past century, especially when I say ourselves, I'm talking about humans. I think that with all of the latest medical interventions, which are fantastic, I'm a big fan of modern medicine. There's doctors in my family. I love it. But at the same time, we've relied too heavily on that to fix all of the problems. And I believe that we have in our own bodies the technology to fix the majority of our problems. I'm not talking about getting hit by a car, you know, and resetting your spine. I'm talking about the problems that, you know, the vast majority of us suffer from these these diseases of civilization. So when I mentioned that at the end of Deep, it was just showing that the human body has this incredible ability to dive extremely deep just like dolphins whales uh, seals were designed to do this which is why we are imbued with these mammalian dive reflexes and that's just one of the many things that we have the ability to do that we have just completely forgotten about that our ancestors used to rely on all the time that 
modern humans don't. And so I think that that's one line of, of thinking that continues throughout my books is to look at what we're really capable of and what we can use our, our natural technology to do. I think people listening are, are hearing the word free diving and assuming it's these, you know, dolphin like looking creatures that are super skinny that are just, you know, they're just different from me that that's not something that I can relate to or something that I'll understand. But um, you, you went and actually visited this group of um, women in Japan, I believe it's there, it's pronounced Ama. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that? Because I think for me, when I read that, I was like, oh, wow, this is a capability that really exists inside all of us. And that was just, was a really special moment in that book. Well, yeah, the, the Ama are just uh, representations of what so many of our ancestors were doing throughout coastal communities around the world, which is what we were doing was, was relying on our innate diving abilities to harvest food from the seafloor. That's how pearl divers got pearls. That's how coral divers in Greece got coral. Red coral exists around 150 feet and below. So the only way to get it is to go down and dive and get it. And so this is just what we were doing for thousands and thousands of years. There's archeological evidence dating back to around 12,000, 13,000 years of humans free diving to great depths. So for a lot of us uh, in the modern world, we free dive because it's fun, right? It's a recreation. Some people do it competitively, which I think is absolutely nuts for the same reason why you wouldn't do yoga competitively. I don't view it that way, but this line of Alma divers in Japan has had this continuous tradition for the past 2,500 years of diving for food. And these women I was diving with were in their 80s and they've been diving every single, every single day since they were 15 years old. And they're the most badass, strongest people mentally, physically, that uh, elderly people I've ever met in my life. So it just shows you that, you know, when people say, oh, past 60, past 70, you, you shouldn't be doing too much. No, if, if you keep doing it, keep building your body and be mindful of that, you can do a lot of things. And they're one example of that. It's amazing. It's amazing. I love this, this theme of that the intelligent design of our systems or our capacity, maybe we've lost touch with it. And, and by returning to some of these um, natural environments and natural practices, or certainly these things within our control that we can start to unlock that potential, really, really amazing. So as we shift focus into breath, it's kind of interesting. You, you just mentioned 12,000 years ago, records of, of folks diving down and holding their breaths for long periods of time and, and going into the ocean. But something else happened 12,000 years ago that I didn't really know about until I was reading your book. And it's this, um, the idea that that is the first time when humans started cultivating our own food. I'm wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about that and, um, and its implications for how we breathe. Sure. So that, that's the rough estimate of when cultures really stopped hunting and gathering and settling down and beginning agriculture. And not by a coincidence, those are the very first instances that groups of people were having chronically crooked teeth. So at the same time that we started farming for the first time on a wide scale, we started having crooked teeth on a wide scale. And the reason is when you're eating a mono diet, especially when you're processing that diet, and if you're looking at starchy roots that you're just boiling or cooking all the time, there's not chewing stress. And without that chewing stress, your mouth and your bones don't model correctly. And so luckily that wasn't a big problem because only certain pockets of communities were subsisting on these mono diets. But if you go forward in time and start looking at the industrial revolution, 
that's when all the food basically got soft and it has remained soft to this day so that is why we have crooked teeth people think it's genetic people think it's caused by this or that it's caused by lack of chewing in our diets and so these crooked teeth which um you, I think you humorously point out that we're the only animals that have crooked teeth, aside from bulldogs that we have modified to have flat faces and crooked teeth. But we're the only ones that um, have, for for these reasons of eating, you know, processed foods or soft foods, uh, have 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 these malocclusions in these in these crooked teeth. Um, but the downstream effect of that is that we've also reduced our palate size. I think you mentioned at one point that. Um, it was something that ancient palates were almost two tenths of an inch bigger than what we have today. So our palates have actually decreased in size along with uh, our teeth getting um, crooked. That's exactly right. So we have crooked teeth because our mouths shrunk. So teeth grow in straight when they have a large enough playing field to grow in straight. They want to grow in straight, but when they don't have that large enough playing field, when our mouths are too small, they grow in crooked. This isn't some crazy hypothesis, by the way. This, this is a scientific fact. And when you have a mouth that's too small for your face, so the teeth grow in crooked, you also have a smaller airway. And with that smaller airway, it makes it harder to breathe. And that upper palate, instead of growing out and flat, which is all what all our ancestors had, was an upper palate that was uh, that grew outwards, okay, and with a big pronathic face. The upper palate looks just like mine. It grows upwards, and it can push into the sinus cavities here, which makes it harder to breathe through the nose. So this is why so many of us are mouth breathers. And I, I, I had never uh, learned any of this in biology class or, you know, archaeology, but or anthropology. And uh, it, it, it just makes complete sense if you have a smaller passageway through which air can flow, obviously you're gonna have more breathing problems, which is exactly what has happened with our populations. It's so wild to think that something you just assume is, you know, it's always been done this way. And so we're always gonna do it this way. But I remember as a, a freshman at the at the Naval Academy, part of the process of being a, a freshman was you were going to get your wisdom teeth pulled and you'd always be walking around the yard and you'd see kids with these big chipmunk teeth and teeth or big chipmunk cheeks. And you just, you're like, Oh yeah, okay. That person got their wisdom teeth pulled. And it was only a matter of time before they called your name in and you had to get your wisdom teeth pulled. And it was just part of the process. Like everyone gets their wisdom teeth pulled, but you, you, you talk about this is that like, and actually pulling out those teeth, you shrink the size of your palate, shrink the size of your mouth, and then you feel all the, you know, encounter all the downstream negative effects of that. So, um, yeah, I mean, you, you think about it, how many other animals, there's 5,400 different mammals in the animal kingdom, how many of those need to pull out their wisdom teeth when they get to be 17 or 18? Well, the answer is zero. How many of our ancestors needed to pull out their wisdom teeth? zero this is not normal for a species to have to pull out teeth to make room in your mouth it's just become normal because so many of us have a mouth that's too small for our faces and the reason why uh, the military does this i'm assuming is because they don't want soldiers with impacted molars or dental problems when when they're out in the field right those are really painful and i'm not someone that's against pulling out the wisdom teeth okay i think a lot of people need it but I'm someone who is paid as a journalist to go in to ask the question to why are we pulling out our wisdom teeth? <laughs> this is it with 300 years ago, we didn't need to do this. 
and and yet almost everyone i know has a wisdom teeth pulled out today it's it's insane and it happened so quickly so we have smaller palates um and as a result of those smaller palates we're decreased the size of um our airway uh and and um correct me where i go go wrong here but Mm -hmm. as a result of that we we tend to breathe more out of our mouth and then that puts us in a um has a lot of um disastrous consequences as a result of it and i think it's it's fascinating to explore this through the study that you went through um where you actually went to stanford went through a study to see what happens when you plug up your nose and you're forced to breathe through your mouth and then you kind of open that up and could you maybe share a little bit about that experience and 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 what you learned through that Sure. So the problem with having a mouth that's too small for your face isn't just mouth breathing, even though that's a big one. It is that your entire airway is too small, right? So we know that kids with smaller mouths are going to have a significantly increased chance of snoring and having sleep apnea later on in life. So there's been several studies looking at that. They've even looked at uh, people who had been infants who had been breastfed versus those who've been bottle fed. When you were breastfed, it pulls the face out it allows for a larger palate there's a lot of sucking and chewing stress involved in that bottles bottle feeding not as much so again this just makes perfect sense to to me when when i learned it it's of, of course more exercise the more you're taking those soft bones in infancy and pulling them out to have a wider face you're going to be able to breathe better But as you mentioned, another side effect of this is having that upper palate penetrate into the sinus cavities, which makes it harder to breathe through your nose and can cause a chronically stuffed nose. It can also cause you to become a habitual mouth breather. And mouth breathing is something that has not been thought of traditionally as deleterious to our health. And yet you look at the literature and so many researchers have been complaining about this for decades and decades. Back to 120 years ago, there's studies and articles from scientists saying that this is really destroying our health. And still, you've got 25 to 50% of kids doing it. And so that's what inspired me to do the Stanford experiment. This was not a study, it was just an experiment because we only had two people. We had to pay for this ourselves and that's the max that we were allowed to do where we plugged our noses and were mouth breathers for 10 days. And then we were nasal breathers for 10 days and we were taking data the entire time just to see if there was a difference between those two phases. What was your expectation going into that? Did you think uh, maybe maybe there'll be something interesting and novel, but not especially consequential as a result of plugging my nose? Or I'm curious what you thought going in and then coming out of it. I know what your experience is like because you talk about it so mm-hmm. eloquently in the book. It sounds horrible, but... <laughs> It's, you know, a lot of my friends are ripping on me and saying, oh, this is like some jackass stunt, right? Uh, what, what are you doing? This is something like a teenager would do. But if you really look at how many people are suffering from chronic nasal obstruction, especially during allergy season, right? That's when, for some reason, snoring and sleep apnea go through the roof in allergy season. Hmm, what could that be caused by? So we were really lulling ourselves into a position that so many people knew. And they weren't attributing all of these negative symptoms to their allergies like headaches and chronic fatigue and dry mouth to this constant mouth breathing. And so we just thought we would get a personal take on what that would be like. So I had no real expectations beyond the fact that I had at this time read up on a lot of the science of 
what happens when you breathe the majority of your breaths through your mouth it affects your ability to think it affects your heart rate it can affect your blood pressure it affects the health of your lungs it affects the health of your sinus cavities it affects the health of your mouth significantly increased chance of having periodontal disease if you're a mouth breather so i knew all that but i did not think any of that was going to happen in 10 days right that stuff would have to happen over years and years and years to really cause a lot of injuries but a lot of other things happened in 10 days and we were shocked about that your one stat that kind of blew me away that that struck me was that your snoring increased almost five thousand percent in a 10-day period of time yeah and who if if anyone doubts this right if you thought i was exaggerating well i could show you the data for one but if you think i'm exaggerating just plug your nose at night, okay? Find a way, put earplugs in there. We had all, we had tape up there, all silicon up there, whatever. Please don't plug, do this. But... Plus your nose. <laughs> Should you choose to do this, this is how you do it, everybody. You take whatever the hell is around, and you put it in your freaking nose, and then you measure your sleep, get a pulse oximeter, look at your drops of oxygen, uh, set up a camera, which is what we did. We wore aura rings. We did all that stuff. Look at what happens to the quality of your sleep simply by changing the pathway through which you breathe air. If you do not believe me and you will see for yourself the significant effects this has, um, for some people, it will give them severe snoring and sleep apnea. Um, for others, it will have less of effect, but it will still negatively impact your sleep. I promise you. So that's the stick, everyone. Um, if you breathe through your mouth, lots of bad stuff happens. I think on the, the carrot side of the equation is actually really interesting what's happening when you breathe through your nose and why your nose or why we are designed to breathe through our nose. One of the things that you talk about, James, and maybe this is just the, the entry point here, um, is this idea that our nasal tissues are actually um, expanding and contracting um, each nostril independently based upon what state our body is in. And so one, one side has a calming, relaxing effect. The other side has a more energizing effect. Could you maybe talk about that and then use that as a way to, to just inform or share with us why the nose is such a perfectly designed instrument for us to breathe? Sure. Well, there's myriad reasons why we are designed to breathe through the nose, not just for that shifting of air through one nostril or the other. It's because when you breathe through your nose, this is your first line of defense against pathogens, bacteria, even viruses. This is what the nose helps filter out and to kill. So when you're breathing through the nose, you are breathing filtered air. Our noses are crammed with these little hair-like structures called cilia. They grab onto crap in the air to make that air cleaner by the time it passes into our lungs. And it also heats up the air, it humidifies it, and more. So when you are not breathing through your nose, you can think of like every breath you're taking is just unfiltered and if you live in a city like i do that means you're just taking in pollens you're taking in pollution you're taking in dust you're taking in mold without any filtration to it you're also breathing too much so there's no resistance when you're breathing through your mouth <gasps> that's how long it takes me to take a single breath of air through my mouth but through the nose <sighs> 
It takes a long time to get that air and you really want that resistance. That resistance helps us to upload about 25% more oxygen breathing through the nose than we do through the mouth. So the other side of this is what you mentioned is that each of our nostrils has a different function and the yogis have known this for about 1500 years so if you breathe in through your right nostril that heats the body up and increases blood pressure okay that's considered the sympathetic side of our noses and if you breathe in and out through your left you calm the body down there's been interesting studies uh, including ekg studies eeg studies just looking at the difference of breathing from one nostril to the other. Now you can do this manually. You can force yourself to breathe that way. It's called alternate nostril breathing. A lot of people do this in yoga, but our bodies naturally do this throughout the day. Every 30 minutes to three to four hours, they will shift from right to left to right again. So if you're breathing through your nose, you don't get any of these advantages of your body using your nostrils to try to balance itself throughout the day and night. It's such a good example of of why it's a good example of why it's important to continue to stay curious about things. Because I, as soon as I, I mean, I've heard this in yoga classes before, where they say breathe through the right nostril, do this or left, and I've always called BS on it. I'm just like, get out of here with your woo stuff. Let me stretch and move my body and sweat a little bit, and then I'm going to be gone and I'll be happy. But um, when I came across it in your book, I was like, oh my god. And so then I went back to the notes and read the studies and kind of went through like, what's this, what's really going on here? That's mind blowing. And it's, I think, again, we can have this fixed mindset about the way that we're designed or the way that we function or, you know, how we can do something as simple as breath. Um, but we do so to our disadvantage. And when you really allow someone like yourself uh, to shine the light on the science and uh, give us a, a path to explore, it can be pretty, um, pretty eye-opening. So this was this was a place where you kind of blew my mind. I was like, wow, okay, I'm gonna stop um, stop calling my yogis bad names when, when I'm in yoga class. <laughs> well, well, to to me, it's anything that's measurable and replicable is worthy of study. I don't understand why some scientists would poo-poo one thing and, and totally agree with something else. You can poo-poo it if you've studied it and you've found that it does not work or it is not doing what it's, it is supposed to do. So these studies have been around for a long time. I think there's about 20, not, not a ton, but, but enough to be like, hmm, there's probably something going on here. And you can also do your own studies if you don't believe the scientists and look at your heart rate variability, look at your blood pressure breathing from one nostril to the other. The EEG studies are, are very convincing where different sides of your brain will get more oxygen. They will start lighting up depending on what nostril you're breathing through. That's really hard for that to just be a placebo effect. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's really hard. One thing that I got a lot of crap for from people was there was a, a paper done at University of California, San Diego, in which a researcher noticed that a schizophrenic patient of his had no breathing ability out of her right nostril. So she was always breathing through her left nostril. The left nostril is considered the creative nostril, right? This is the parasympathetic nostril that activates the right side of the brain. And so he hypothesized that her schizophrenia could have been exacerbated by just breathing through this left nostril. And so he had her breathe through both nostrils, trained her 
alternate nostril breathing to open up both of the nostrils and her condition significantly improved. Now, this is not proving anything that this is going to cure all schizophrenics of problems. It's just an interesting observation by a researcher in a lab. And it's something to consider. And, and so I guess people took it the wrong way. Like I was saying, all schizophrenics just need to breathe through both of their nostrils and they're going to be fine. And that is not at all what I said or what this researcher said. So again, as a science journalist, I, I don't have opinions on things. I, I try to spend as much time out in the field, talk to the leaders in the field and look at the data and see what checks out. Amazing. It's amazing. One um, one other thing that the nose does, and you talk about the science of this, is that when you're breathing through your nose, you're actually releasing more nitric oxide into your system. And so 18% more nitric oxide, which helps um, make the oxygen that you're breathing more bioavailable and has a lot of positive effects on your system. That is something that I think most people wouldn't necessarily think at first sight, like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm actually getting a different gas by breathing through my nose. Um, but another gas that you talk about, carbon dioxide and its role in our performance and when we're breathing, I think is something that is a little bit mind blowing to me. And this is, you know, we've had Brian McKenzie on before and he's talked about CO2 threshold tests and what it means to um, have a low threshold for CO2 tolerance. I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about carbon dioxide and its role um, in breath. Sure. And I'll, I'll just piggyback on what you said about NO, about nitric oxide is this is a very, very important molecule. And it is the thing that is synthesized more when people take Viagra. So why does Viagra do what it's doing is because it allows more nitric oxide to be available in your body, especially down there in the nether regions. And if you hum, you can increase your nitric oxide by 15 fold if you hum. So it's interesting when people are getting in the mood, there's a lot of breathing through the mouth because you're kissing, right? And there's a lot of, mm, mm, mm. I wonder <laughs> if that's connected through thousands of years, humans have been conditioned. So clearly an observation. You can try this at home, everybody, and see what it, what it does for you. But it's just an interesting thing. You're like, well, we absolutely know that humming increases that nitric oxide, which is why humming is such a wonderful thing to do, not just for the sexual powers it might imbue you with, but because you get more nitric oxide, which means you get more vasodilation, which means you get more oxygen more easily. And who doesn't want that? So the other side of this is CO2. So for most people who are healthy, oxygen is pretty easy, right? unless you're at altitude, unless you have COVID, but CO2 isn't. So someone who is breathing very dysfunctionally, over-breathing all the time, their oxygen levels are gonna be just fine, but their CO2 levels are gonna be in the gutter. And without CO2, that oxygen in our bloodstreams can't disassociate, it can't dislodge from hemoglobin to feed our hungry cells. So oxygen just in the bloodstream has no purpose. It's in the bloodstream to get to the tissues and cells and muscles and the rest of our body. We need CO2 to do that. And so by breathing more slowly, specifically by breathing within your metabolic needs, you increase your CO2 and allow everything in your body from your heart rate to your blood pressure to digestion to even your mood and your brain to function at a better level of efficiency 
and who the heck doesn't want that hmm. it's it's hard to imagine something that would create more anxiety or stress for someone than the ability or the feeling that they can't breathe and and you talk about this um he was a researcher out of smu that's doing um uh, doing studies where she's looking at people that have chronic anxiety and telling them um, the opposite of what we typically tell them is like, take some deep breaths to calm down. She's saying, hold your breath uh, or slow your breath. Um, and that's actually having an impact, uh, positive impact on those that are suffering from anxiety or maybe a panic attack. Yeah, so this is one of those researchers that, that I really like. She was at Stanford before she was at Harvard. Now, and exactly, she's at SMU. And what she was really looking at, she said, hmm, why do people have panic attacks? So what, what's really triggering the panic? Is it just mental that they just get overloaded with things or is there a physiological component? Specifically, is there a breathing component to this? So she discovered that you can see a panic attack come on an hour before it happens by looking at CO2. What she's looking for is when that CO2 starts lowering, that means that people are breathing way over their metabolic needs. <sighs> over and over and over. And the more you breathe too much, the more you're gonna stress yourself out. The more you stress yourself out, the more you can trigger an attack, be that an asthma attack or a panic attack. So she thought, hmm, if these people are over breathing so much and that could be causing these attacks to come on, what happens when you treat, treat them in a certain way to allow them to breathe more slowly to increase that co2 and to keep that co2 up at that healthy level and lo and behold this worked better than any other invention out there this is it um, slowing down the breathing and there's a lot of work happening right now into co2 giving co2 to panic sufferers to anxiety sufferers to asthma sufferers to increase their CO2 thresholds so that they will naturally unconsciously breathe more slowly. Because what these people are suffering from is a problem of having a very low CO2 threshold that causes them to overbreathe all the time. And the moment that CO2 goes up, it reminds them of the feeling of getting a panic attack or an asthma attack. So they try to avoid that by overbreathing. And this causes this vicious cycle. There's a lot of technical info there. I probably told you way too much, but <laughs> that's the overview, people. No, it's 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 amazing. And so just to just to restate it to make sure I understand, um, when we breathe, it's these these chemoreceptors or these sensors inside us that it's not telling us we don't have enough oxygen. It's telling us we have um, too much CO2 and it's time to breathe. And it's that trigger of, of, Hey, we need to off gas CO2 that tells us it's time to breathe. Uh, and then we breathe. But if we get to a place where we're so sensitive to CO2 in our system, then we're breathing all the time, or maybe we're breathing too much. Our rate of respiration is too high and we're off gassing CO2. And because we don't have enough CO2 in our system, that means that we're not able to take advantage of the oxygen that we have. It's not bioavailable. And so that's that vicious cycle that you're talking about. You are hired. That's exactly <laughs> it. And something that people should, should consider as well is that need to breathe. This is why this is so important. Right now, if you were to exhale and hold your breath, you're going to feel this nagging need to breathe. That is not caused by oxygen. It's caused by rising levels 
of CO2. So our breathing rate that need to breathe, what triggers it is CO2, not oxygen. Until you get very high up in altitude, which we don't have to worry about that in this conversation. So it's CO2 that's dictating our breathing pace, essentially. And the fact that we can manipulate that CO2 threshold is fantastic. And we do that by making those chemoreceptors more tolerant of CO2. So they aren't constantly sending off alarm bells to breathe, breathe, breathe. It's no coincidence why asthma sufferers and panic sufferers almost all have a very low CO2 threshold, right? Uh, it's it's that is why they're suffering from so many of their their problems is because they're constantly constantly over breathing maybe it's the um maybe it's the, the the seal still inside me but i really like targets to to shoot for or aim at and you're able to narrow into a number of what's that optimal range of opt optimal number of breaths per minute cycles per minute um could you talk about this number five and a half? And I think what is especially cool about it is that it's not just reflected in our breath, but it's reflected elsewhere. Could you maybe talk about that? Sure. So about 20 years ago, some scientists had a bunch of subjects recite two prayers, the Catholic prayer cycle of the rosary and the Buddhist mantra, Om Mani Padme Hum. And they noticed that to recite these prayers, it force these people to breathe at the same rate, which was about five and a half seconds in, and then five and a half seconds out. And when you're breathing out, you are speaking, you're reciting the prayer. So it was like this cycle. And then they did what good researchers did, and they hooked up a bunch of sensors to these subjects. They had them just breathe at this rate, and they noticed oxygenation to the brain increased HRV increased, blood pressure decreased, so all of these good things. And they called it coherent breathing because it put the different systems of the body, respiration and the heart rate, into this state of coherence where everything was working at peak efficiency. So this five and a half is just a general gauge. Some people who are taller need to breathe slower than that because they have larger diaphragms. But for most people, it's a good place to shoot for this five and a half, five to six seconds in, five to six seconds out. And if you're at target practice, you know, you want to be shooting in between those heartbeats. And this is a way <laughs> of slowing down that heartbeat, tuning into your body, allowing your brain to focus. The best thing is it's totally free and anyone can do it anytime. No one knows you're doing it. I'm doing it right now in between these, uh, you know, questions. So it's just it's a great way of increasing your efficiency, no matter what you're doing. Obviously, if you're running at a sprint, you're playing sports, you're going to need to breathe a lot more than that. I'm talking about at rest, sitting on a couch, sitting, you know, doing an interview, answering emails, that kind of thing. Amazing. Amazing. Five and a half. Um, so we talked about um, slowing our breath down. Something else that, that you talk about is this idea that um, it's not just about the rate of inhalation, but it's also about getting a complete and full exhale. Um, and what happens when we don't get a full exhale? Could we maybe discuss that for a little bit? Sure. A lot of people think that healthy breathing is just 
Whenever you start talking about breathing, people become really self-conscious. I see this every talk I do, and they, they want to be an example of someone who's breathing good. So they sit up and they go, and they just pack air on top of air on top of air, which is cool, I guess, but it's not very efficient. If you want an efficient breath, in order to get the most out of that big inhale that you're taking in, you need to first exhale. And a lot of us aren't very good at exhaling specifically people with respiratory problems. If you ever see someone with emphysema or other forms of COPD, they're just packing air in. And you see their shoulders moving all the time and their necks tensing. Not many of us breathe this way, but we breathe softer versions of this. It's really bad for us. It causes us a lot of undue stress. So if you want to take a proper breath, a very efficient breath, you need to learn how to bring that diaphragm up and make a full exhale. Inhaling is easy. Everyone can do that. But exhaling fully, a lot of us aren't used to doing that. There's many exercises you can do to help strengthen the diaphragm and strengthen its uh, motion up and down. But this is so important, especially for athletes, because you don't want to be over-breathing. You want to be taking fewer breaths and getting more oxygen with each of those breaths and exhaling fully allows you to do that. Yeah. And even just to, to underscore this a little bit more, you mentioned um, that a typical adult engages about 10% of their diaphragmatic range when breathing. So their shallow breaths, maybe staying in the upper chest, never really getting down um, to the lower lobes of the lungs. And in doing so in this kind of shallow breathing and much of it is subconscious. We don't realize we're doing it. Um, it overburdens the heart. It elevates our blood pressure, causes lots of circulatory problems. And if you can even just shift that 10% to 50 or 70% uh, of that capacity, it's going to um, dramatically ease that cardiac stress that you're putting yourself under. And so you can imagine that, um, you know, all right, I, I think about, all right, maybe 10% or 20% over a few days, not a big deal. But you think about, you've been doing this for years, that adds up over time and um, and can create a whole host of problems. Um, the other thing that you share, James, that I think is really powerful is this, it's not even just about the breath, but it's also about what happens when that diaphragm is pushing all the way down and pushing on our internal organs uh, and the benefits that come from that. Could you maybe talk just a little bit about that as well? Sure. And this is really Huberman's jam, you know, with the phrenic nerve and all that. But what you're doing when you are allowing that diaphragm to descend is it is pushing down against your intestines, your kidneys, all of those organs down there. And you might be thinking, well, that's awful. Why do I want to push against these poor organs? This is how they leach lymph fluid. This is how you increase that circulation and purge all of those toxins. Our organs need this massage. What is yoga but a breathing meditation in which you're just massaging your organs by twisting your body and pretzeling the whole time? So the reason why yoga, one of the reasons it's so good for you is because it allows you to get that flexibility. And just by taking a big breath in and exhaling fully, you're allowing that diaphragm to descend and ascend more fully and you're allowing that pumping of the lymph fluid to happen more efficiently the diaphragm also helps pump blood which is why these one of the reasons why these slower more fluid breaths 
are so good for so many people with blood pressure. It isn't going to cure everyone of every problem, not at all. But you can try it out. Breathe very slowly at a rate of even slower than five seconds in, five seconds out, and take your blood pressure before and after, breathing at this very slow, fluid rate, and you can see what happens. You'll notice your heart rate goes down too. So that's just after a couple of minutes of breathing in this healthy way. I mean, just imagine what's going to happen after a couple of weeks or a couple of months. I, I can tell you, I've, I've seen it. I've talked to hundreds <laughs> and hundreds of people who have really reduced a lot of chronic problems they've had. Some of them have reversed them completely. Um, and and it, to me, that's not a huge gap of to, to get my head around. Of course, it makes sense. You're allowing your body to operate more efficiently. And if you're in a state hunched over your desk where you can't even take a deep breath, forcing yourself to breathe twice as many breaths as you need to, which is causing that stress response in your body, and you're doing that all day, and then your mouth breathing all night, What's that going to do for you? It's going to make you sick. And I think this is one of the reasons why a lot of us are contending with so many chronic ailments. It's not every reason, but I think it's really contributing to a, a lot of chronic problems. Mm-hmm. So powerful. I, I didn't fully appreciate this until I got married, but I didn't I didn't realize the number of um, women that suffer from GI issues and that just like stomach, stomach related issues is, is a chronic and systemic thing. It, it seems like for for a lot of women. And I wonder if part of that is, you know, you're, you're keeping your core tight. So you're not showing your belly or you're not, you know, it's for aesthetic reasons. And so you're always breathing in the upper, you know, upper ranges of your diaphragm and never really getting that full massage. And again, you know, directionally, it seems like it would make sense, but For for sure. I mean, you know, everyone wants to look hot at the beach and this isn't just a a woman's deal. It's a lot of dudes, you know, Mm -hmm. are doing the exact same thing. But if you look at real yogis, people who practice this, they've got a little paunch going on because they're allowing their muscles to truly relax. You are going to be better off if you are allowing those stomach muscles to relax and for gi issues you know digestion is tied you can get much better digestion when you're breathing easy you're in that parasympathetic uh, state which is why when you're stressed out it's so hard to eat right you're jacked the stomach is tight for people with ibs and other uh, it's funny i just interviewed someone about this last week something to check out as well everyone's like oh the whole trick is probiotics just keep stuffing probiotics down yeah but but you need to have a healthy microbiome in order to support those probiotics so vitamin b b complex is very helpful and vitamin d sunlight exposure is so helpful again that's another one of huberman's big things but i think that this is really coming to the forefront right now of not just health for bone health, people associate vitamin D with bone health, but for total body health, even the Mm -hmm. stomach. I know I'm a little off track from breathing, but I see all of these things as very closely related. Yeah, no, not at all. I know it's not something you talked about in breath, but did you come across in any of your conversations um, about breath and its impact on the biome, whether it's in upper respiratory or um, nasal microbiome? I, I, on nasal microbiome for sure. But if you're looking at gut microbiome, not so much, you know, there have been studies looking at chronic stress 
and gut microbiome. So you can associate if you're constantly stressing your out self out by breathing dysfunctionally, what's going to happen to your microbiome. But so many of these studies are never, ever going to be done. You're not going to have a randomized controlled study where you take, you know, a hundred people, um, and have them breathe extremely dysfunctionally to the point that they're extremely sick after a month, and then have the other controlled group not do that. There's no money in that and no one's going to fund it because there's no money to be made after you discover this is true. So, uh, it, but to me, you don't want chronic stress in your life. You want stress to be acute and you want that for sure, but you don't want chronic stress. One way, it's not the only way to help reduce chronic stress is to fix your breathing. So you are a healthy breather unconsciously so you don't have to think about it your body is tuned up your chemo receptors are healthy and you can just breathe well unconsciously through your nose slowly rhythmically it's not that hard but you'd be surprised how few people do it yeah it seems like it, it's so easy to dismiss dismiss it outright because it's so simple and it's so easy um but that doesn't mean it's not so powerful as well. So the things the things that we've talked about, um, obviously the importance of breathing through our nose, of chewing hard foods, um, and making sure that your diet is not just soft things, to increase the size of your palate and the strength of your palate, um, to slow our, the rate of our breathing and to make sure that we're having full exhales. I know you save this for the, the latter, latter part of your books, but I think the first thing that Oftentimes people say when at least they say to me when we start talking about breath is they, they say, Well, do you know Wim Hof? Have you tried Wim Hof? What do you think about that? And so that has become in in many situations the proxy for breath work is Wim Hof, but there's a place for it. And so I'm curious how you think about you call them breathing plus practices, but maybe some of these breathing practices that are at the extreme end of of what we're capable of doing and, and what what benefits they can offer us. I think Wim has brought the power of breathing, breathing awareness to more people than anyone in the past 20 years. I think what he's done is incredible. I think he's so inspiring to so many people. I'm a huge fan of quote unquote, his breath work, even though he's the first person <laughs> to admit this is not his, he did not invent this. Okay. These are thousands and thousands of years old, these breathing practices. You can call them Qigong, you can call them Pranayama, you can call it Kriya, I don't care whatever you call it. All of these cultures were doing these for thousands and thousands of years. So he's just taken a very old practice and he was smart enough to know that people needed a showman. Um, they needed someone to really inspire them to take this stuff and to have fun with it, which is what he's done. His work with people with autoimmune disorders, I think is absolutely fascinating and fantastic. I've talked to several of these people who are in such dire shape. They started exposing themselves to cold, be that a cold bath or a cold shower. They started breathing to have that acute stress, to learn how to turn on that acute stress through breathing, and then to learn how to turn it off. And so I think his system's fantastic. It's one of many. And to me, it's no coincidence that Almost all of these systems, there's just different means that all end up and have the same ends. <laughs> they have the same endpoint where they allow the body to become balanced. You can try holotropic breath work. You can try art of living. I don't care, but they all work um, because they're all doing the same thing to your body. And so when you're engaged in one of these practices, Tumo, Wim Hof, um, Pranayama, you're varying the rate of your breath, typically breathing sure. out quickly or what, what's going on? 
So if unconsciously we're able to stress our bodies out by leaning over and if we take conscious control of our breath and tell ourselves to really overbreathe, like really go for it, we can reach maximum stress levels. And I mean that in the best way uh, because this is acute. It's a short burst of stress. It's like an exercise. And once we're done with that short burst of stress, our body is able to come back down into that balanced state. So there are various ways of doing this. Almost all of them, well, not all of them, but many of them, I should say, have you hyperventilate on purpose. <laughs> Whatever you want to do through the nose, through the mouth, don't care. Then they have you hold your breath, hold it for a very long time, right? So you offload all that CO2 and then you build that CO2 as high as you can take it before you need to take a breath. And then you go back to breathing. So it's always a wave and it's a cycle. And I could tell you 10 different ways of doing this thing from 2000 years ago to 3000 years ago to 500 years ago. They were all inventing different ways of over breathing to not breathing at all. They were doing this because it worked. And the science is very clear that it can be very effective at helping to mitigate stress. And again, helping even people balance themselves who have autoimmune issues um, or blood pressure issues or anxiety issues. I'm just curious um, what you think is going on there. Like why, why would inducing acute periods of stress be good for us or beneficial? Well, why would exercise be good for us? Why would high intensity interval training be good for us? Why would, um, you know, learning how to take control of your breathing to purposely stress yourself out so that you could learn how to take control of your breathing to really relax yourself? You know, why, why would that be good? It would be good because it allows you to take control of some aspects of your immune function. It allows you to take control of your stress. And when you're over breathing right like this, you're jacking your cortisol, right? And how do we fight off flus and, and viruses and things? We, we do this by being in this very activated, high cortisol state, right? And so this allows you to, to turn that on and then turn it off. And it also, at least if you're looking at studies of whim, you'll be consuming a lot more oxygen for hours afterwards, and it helps tune yourself up. So the breath holds, what do those do? Well, we had talked about earlier in the program, everybody, the importance of making those chemo receptors more tolerant of more CO2. Guess what holding your breath for four minutes at a time and getting really comfortable with doing that is going to do? It's going to make your chemo receptors much more tolerant of CO2 so that you will breathe more normally, more slowly when you are not practicing these methods. Mm -hmm. For anyone considering practicing any of this, please do so not in water, not around water, not behind a moving vehicle. Um, I think anyone that's spent any length of time around water has lost someone or lost friends or people that they've known, including myself, um, from doing stuff like this in water. So um, just a just a note of caution there. Ab absolutely. We should have said that up at the top. So slow breathing, you can do anytime you want. Slow, rhythmic breathing great for driving great for everything else when you're really jacking yourself up with these different breath work practices you're also you tend to enter a very altered state of consciousness which is wonderful you feel great 
obviously use common sense with this never do this in the water anywhere near the water never do this when you're walking on a street in a city you have to do this in a very controlled setting do it with someone who has a lot of experience doing this right do it on your couch do it on your bed so thank you for mentioning that uh you know there's common sense around all of this but but it should be called out especially in the water just like you uh when you're reckless in the water the ocean is always going to win so you have to come to the ocean with a lot of respect and understand you are very small and respect your role in that otherwise uh, you can really end up getting hurt 100% 100% it's so um yeah it's just so so cool to hear you talk about the benefits of engaging some of these breathing plus practices and the stress that it puts on our, our body and why that's good for us. The thing that I always, when I, when I hear about these things, that the thing that comes to mind is that it's very easy for us to get locked in a specific state. You think about someone that gets into, goes into combat or someone that gets in a car accident, maybe you get locked into a state of hypervigilance um, or, um, you get locked into another state or you get fixed in your thinking or your mindset, or you, you just, you get rigid and life's not about rigidity. It's not about living in a narrow domain, whether it be a breath or anything, but it's rather, what is that, the, the amount of variability you, you think about heart rate variability as a proxy for health and recovery. And when you have a high heart rate variability, that tells you that you're recovered and you're ready to go. It's because you have this range and you're you're able to go high and you're able to go low. And so I think part of what's going on with these breathing plus practices is that it's helping you force open your range so that you can be more primed to um, explore that range or to maybe sync with the environment that you're in in a, in a way that uh, sets you up for success. So um, and I think another reason these honestly, one of the reasons these have gotten so popular and and you're right everything you said is is spot on i mean there's whole breathing studios now in, in malibu and san diego where they're not even doing yoga they're just doing breathing is this stuff if you do it right if you know how to breathe before you do these practices so you can't just go into this cold you really know how to breathe they can really take you to some interesting places uh physically uh, it, uh, the sensations are very wild and mentally as well. And so they're fun. And I think that's one of the, it, it, it's not like a painful thing that every time, oh, I got to do my, my breath work. It's going to suck for a half an hour. You start to really look forward to it because it's a break from the monotony of the modern world. And that's one reason I always come back to it. And all the other stuff is just the, the fringe benefits of it. You know, the, the happy side effects. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, just just to note too that we have this internal tool that we can tap into at any time and it works every time. <laughs> like it is always going to have an effect on you. There's no you can you can take, you know, you can believe what you want to believe, but if you breathe in a certain way, it's going to elicit a certain response um and then you can decide how that works for you or or, or how you want to engage that. Yeah, it's measurable. It elicits yeah. a measurable response, an objectively measurable response. And I think that's nothing wrong with the placebo effect. Placebos are great, you know, uh, but but this is is you can calculate, you can look at your progress, you can look at data. And so many of us have all these different wearables now, right? So you can do this in the comfort of your own home without having to go to a lab and see for yourself what's the breathing rate that works right for you. What's the breathing practice that you get the most out of? You can experiment with these things 
And, uh, you know, another thing I love about breathing is you're only going to benefit. Some people benefit tremendously, but some people benefit just a little bit, but it's, it's always a plus, right? I, I don't know anyone that has ever learned how to breathe better who, who have said, my life is worse now. My health is worse now. I feel worse after doing this. It just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, something that's just stayed with me both from reading deep and from reading breath is this idea that we have this potential inside us that um, we've gotten disconnected from it. And if we engage some of these practices or educate ourselves about what is really within our capacity or what we're capable of doing, that all of a sudden our world kind of opens up and things get more expansive. And so it doesn't matter if, you know, you're talking about and some of this stuff is mind blowing and, and deep. This idea of magnetoreception or echolocation or the master switch—these things that you know sound like they're out of a science fiction novel—but truth be told, it's just science, and it's it's in us, and we can tap into this. And then the same thing, feeding into breath, this idea that we have this tool that's with us at all times, and we can engage it to pretty profound and amazing effects. So, um, just uh, yeah, just you know. So much gratitude for you for kind of shining the light in the way that you do. I'm curious, is there anything that stands out for you in, in the research and uh, some of the experiments that you've been a part of that is just shaking you and you said, wow, this is um, this just beguiles all of my expectations or prior you know beliefs about something? Well, I think it was something that we talked about earlier of just this idea that evolution doesn't need tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years to happen. Um, look at how quickly we've made ourselves so sick. And every decade, you know, all of these bad things, be it obesity or diabetes or heart disease, they just keep going up. And if we've made ourselves this sick, we can reverse that, right? And so this isn't like a, a hopeless game. And when I'm talking about all the negative aspects of what's happened to our faces and our teeth and our airways, I want to bring that up because to, to show how malleable the human body is, right? The more the more you use it, it's adaptable in so many different ways. Whether or not you want to hold your breath for eight minutes and dive down to 300 feet, you can do that. Or whether or not you just want to be healthier and avoid, you know, trips to the ER every week for your asthma attacks or your panic attacks. So, and that's what I was mentioning at the beginning of the program of us sort of selling ourselves short for for so long uh yeah western medicine uh pharmaceutical drugs are incredible things when you need them they're they're complete lifesaver i wouldn't be alive without it but at the same time there's a lot we can do with with our own brains and our own bodies and our own breath that that can benefit us yeah it's um it's kind of a cool thought to think that our system is perfect if we engage it the right way and there was a you put a quote in your book the nobel prize winner um Albert Cezette Gregory, I'm pronouncing that correctly, a biochemist. He said, more than 60 years of research on living systems has convinced me that our body is much more nearly perfect than the endless list of ailments suggests. Its shortcomings are due less to inborn perfections than to our abusing it. But to your point, um, and the positive framing of this is that we can we can um, go in the other direction in a very short order, in a short period of time, we can correct uh, the abuse that we put onto our body. 
Yeah, isn't that a beautiful quote? That's from Amazing. like 50 years ago, too. He's much more eloquent than I was. But it, it just sums it all up for me. When I saw that, I, I was like, I have to put this in the book. The editor's like, well, why would you want to put this in the book? Because I think it summarizes the whole concept be, behind the book and, and behind Deep as, as well. It's like, we've got a really good machine here. So the machine doesn't need to be completely overhauled. We don't need computer chips in our brain right we just need to use it right that's all we need to do that guy lived to be like what 91 <laughs> you know he he used his machine in the right way he didn't abuse it you wouldn't drive your car around just putting the pedal to the well some idiots would just pedal to the metal <laughs> all the time and just lay in burnout uh you know you take care of it and then it's going to last longer our bodies are no different amazing amazing um i know People can find out more about your work and your research and the studies at mrjamesnester.com. Um, is there any other place where people should follow you or, or look to continue to see what you're putting out there? Yeah, if, if you think all of this is complete BS, I my publisher allowed me to put the entire bibliography up on the website. Uh, and there are some data sheets. There's some videos of the stuff that seems really hard to believe. There's pictures as well. So you can look at all of that. I'm trying to get better at this Instagram thing. Uh, we're rebooting it entirely. And so I'll be posting a bunch of stuff on that over the next month. I was finally smart and hired a couple of people to do that. So we'll be kicking those out a lot more frequently now. Amazing, amazing. Um, James, is there anything we didn't talk about that we should have? Probably we're not. good. <laughs> I think we're good, especially with a with a throat that is uh, ailing. I think we're we're in a good spot right now. Amazing, amazing. Well, I'm gonna spare your, spare your throat. I'm gonna read one final quote from, um, from Breath. Uh, and I think this perfectly encapsulates our conversation. Uh, before we know it, Breathing slow, less, and through the nose with a big exhale will be big business like so much else. But be aware that the stripped down approach is as good as any. It requires no batteries, Wi-Fi, headgear, or smartphones. It costs nothing, takes little time and effort, and you can do it wherever you are, whenever you need. It's a function our distant ancestors practiced since they crawled out of the sludge two and a half billion years ago, a technology our species has been perfecting with only our lips noses and lungs for hundreds of thousands of years. James, thank you so much for the work that you do um, and for helping us all feel more capable, more confident and better, better navigators of the world around us. Um, we're so grateful for you making time today. Thanks a lot for having me, everybody. Be well. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. To listen to more episodes like this, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to tune into these conversations live, you can visit getmadefor.com forward slash Basecamp to see who our next guest will be and get all of the event details. Thanks for being part of the Made For community. See you next time. Cheers.